0: This is the Meiji at 150 Podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today I'm talking with Dr. Seth Jacobowitz, Assistant Professor of East Asian Languages and Literatures at Yale University. Dr. Jacobowitz's most recent publication is Writing Technology in Meiji Japan, a media history of modern Japanese literature and visual culture, published by Harvard University Asia Center in 2016. Seth, thank you for talking to me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. So in your book, Writing Technology in Meiji Japan, you you talk about how the Meiji period is this time when literature changes from the Tokugawa period into the Meiji period. Can you describe that for us a little bit?
1: Sure. Well, it's not just literature. I think almost everything changes in these, I guess what we would call interpenetrating regimes of the verbal, visual, theatrical, or performative And, you know, even with typography, you know, the the print culture changes from woodblock to to type. So the end point in my book, in, in a sense, is the formation of a modern Japanese language and literature. And one of the things I was looking at was the ways in which the new forms of media technology, which also, you know, is not just apparatuses, but also techniques of writing, really played a very fundamental role in changing modes of expression and representation, and and by that I mean the way we see the world, the way we perceive things. So you know, new ideas of realism, for instance, are coming to the fore uh, with the advent of photography and other forms of manual and mechanical recording. And so, oddly enough, shorthand notation sort of midwifes the production of this new prose literature and the literary style that in my book I called the unified style which is a translation of genbun Ichi, which literally means unification of speech and writing so that's sort of that's sort of the in a very, in a very telescoped way the arc of my book you know if we're thinking about the tokugawa period with its illustrated fiction full of homophones wordplay rebuses you know, and the like, all done in woodblock cursive script. And then we compare that to a Meiji era, which eschews illustration, not entirely. I mean, there are illustrations in books, but for the most part, starting with Tsubochi Shoyo's treatise called The Essence of the Novel, writers were being called upon to not rely on external illustration, but to use words to describe things. And the catchphrase... To write things down just as they are becomes the kind of hallmark of that new realist style, and it's being captured in a new kind of typography. and, And so everything is changing. Everything is quite different, and I see literature as part of those much larger transformations.
0: So as you're saying, it, it's not just the styles of, or the techniques of of writing that change from the Tokugawa period, but then even the thought processes of what is being written about it as this language is being codified?
1: Yeah, I, I, would, I think that's right. I mean, one of the, you know, I don't want to say cliches, but certainly one of the old standbys of modern Japanese literature as a study has been that Western theories were introduced and the Japanese writers were influenced by those theories and then adopted them. And that really didn't take into account the very thoroughgoing transformations of material culture that were also happening. And so let me try to make two sort of didactic points that I say better in the book. Uh, One is that English and other Western languages were by no means you know, naturally given or fully formed, you know, mature objects, whereas the Japanese language was somehow deficient or in flux. I mean, you know, when you look at what linguistic reformers and major literary figures like Mark Twain or George Bernard Shaw were saying in their own era, they also describe English, English spelling rules are described as hieroglyphic or, you know, inscrutable, things like that. And at the same time, people were also very much concerned with the ways in which new forms of typewriting, new forms of technology were also transforming the way people thought and represented reality, for lack of a better word, in literature, in, 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 in you know, English and in other Western languages. So these things were happening you know, kind of all over the world. So the other cliche, not restricted to literature, is this idea that Japan had to catch up to the West. And I really tried to dismantle that as a falsehood, or at least a very crude oversimplification, writing in my book about the ways that Japan, in fact, was very much in dialogue with the adoption of new standardizing measures, so things like standard time, the metric system, etc. But then when we also get to questions of creating a new, more standardized, modern and national Japanese language. So, this would be you know, Kokugo <laughs> for the, the Japanese uh, original. Um, there's Kokugo, there's also Kokuji, which was like national script. And yeah, these were, these were things that Japan was very much in dialogue with. So, I talk about Mori Nori writing letters to prominent American intellectuals, including Herbert Spencer. I talk about Isawa Shuji, who very few people, I think, even in Japan know about. But who was a, also a national language reformer, prominent advocate for the education of the deaf, who studied this experimental phonetic script created by Alexander Melville Bell, the father of Graham Bell. And Isawa learned it directly from Graham Bell just prior to his invention of the telephone. So, you know, these are not just sort of amusing anecdotes, but are really meant to reconnect and resituate Meiji Japan in simultaneous dialogue with major events relating to media history and you know, language reform and the like that are also happening concurrently in the West.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, as you mentioned, oftentimes, people tend to, to emphasize that Meiji Japan is just trying to reinvent itself in the image of the West. And especially with people talk about the idea of adopting English as the official language, or maybe even adopting Romanized script for the Japanese language. And it's easy to kind of see this as a facile attempt to just mimic the West. But uh, I think, as, as you were saying, there, there is a lot more symbiosis. There's a lot more uh, working off of each other as Japan's trying to build itself into a modern nation state.
1: Yeah, I think that's very well said. And so, you know, for me, when we think about Meiji at 150 or what the Meiji era sort of writ large represents, to me, it's, it, it's ultimately not just about internal transformations within Japan. You know, there, there's often debate about the terminology, you know, is it a restoration? Is it a revolution? For me, Meiji pre-stages the national and imperial course of modern Japan, at least to 1945, if not in fact, to the present day.
0: So when I've talked to other scholars of literature and and we ask this question of, you know, is 1868 a meaningful date? And a lot of people will say, well, you know, maybe maybe for literature, 1868 isn't as much of a breakpoint as other dates in the 1880s. It's not until then that the, the canon, for example, gets uh, more firmly established. What would you say about this? Is is 1868 a meaningful date from your perspective as a scholar of literature, or, or more broadly of a scholar of Japan?
1: Let me try to answer it from the perspective more broadly because I, I, I do see myself as primarily a specialist of literature, but not exclusively. And so my next book project is about the Japanese to Brazil. And I'm also very interested in the larger questions of Japanese immigration sort of writ large. So what does 1868 mean to me? I would say it means expansionism, and it means mobility. This is a statement from Tsurumi Yusuke, the father of uh, Tsurumi Shunsuke, who wrote a book in 1935 in Japanese called Expansionist Japan, Bolcho Nippon. And it's never been translated into English as far as I know. So, you know, your, your listeners are getting the first uh, English translation on the fly here. But the, <laughs> the, the, the idea that, that uh, Tsurumi makes is he says, Japan's recognition as a world power followed its victory in the Russo-Japanese War. Still, this was an era that owed its growth to the long incubation of the Tokugawa era. And now a new breakthrough in growth was needed. Population growth in Meiji also broke the inward-looking self-development of the preceding era and necessitated sending imperial subjects abroad for employment opportunities. So that's, that's sort of me writing uh, in 1935, sort of at the height of Japanese imperialism and expansionism. Um, and he was very much an advocate for immigration. You know, one of the ways I thought about answering your question is to say, well, 1868 is important, but so is 1869. Uh, and I guess you could keep going, <laughs> that's but, okay, but I had in mind specifically the formation of the Republic of Ezo in 1869, which is an event very few people you know, seem to know about. And so it really is the first, it, it's an abortive attempt to create an independent, democratically elected republic in what will become Hokkaido, you know, after Republic of Ezo is put down, but Enomoto uh, Takeaki, who is uh, the, you know, sort of the, the leader of this rebellion is not, you know, beheaded or anything like that. He's rehabilitated and becomes a very staunch proponent of immigration, including to places like Mexico. So 1868, you know, you also have the first immigration to Hawaii and soon thereafter to mainland, uh, west coast of the United States, to Canada, to Australia, to Peru. And in fact, Brazil, the subject for my next project, you know, is is much later with an official uh, immigration starting date of 1908. But this is still taking place within Meiji. So again, these ideas of expansionism and mobility of the Japanese, not only as an imperial power, in East Asia and the Pacific but also increasingly as establishing their presence around the world predominantly in the anglophone world but then later in latin and south america through immigration and that to me is something that is a an aspect of meiji that we have to really reinvest our thinking in especially given that in 18 up until 1866 you know it was a capital punishment for japanese to leave japan so what you know what a difference 2 years makes
0: In Canada, it's uh, 1877 when they've documented the first Japanese immigrant arrives in Canada. Uh, it comes it comes into British Columbia. So, what is it that's that's pushing people overseas during the Meiji period?
1: Well, it's certainly you know the desire for a better life. I think the most familiar account is of poverty and of an idea of surplus population that Japan was trying to you know, offshore as many poor, you know, farm workers and so forth as they could in order to stave off internal instability. And I don't think that that's completely untrue. But, you know, what, when, when we look at the historical record, what we see is that the amount of money that laborers could work, and of course, they were doing this as they were usually on contract, but they could, they could also be free labor. They weren't, in other words, they weren't like serfs as they had been under the Tokugawa regime. So they could make more money working in sugarcane plantations in Hawaii, or um, you know, the young men of Meiji who would go and you know work as houseboys in um, the wealthy homes of you know San Francisco uh, white families and the like, washing dishes, what have you. But they could earn more money, and the same went for coffee uh, plantations in in Brazil uh, after the turn of the twentieth century. So. One of the things that we find is that hard currency remittances back to Japan were an extremely important source of hard currency for the Japanese treasury. And, and as a result, they really privileged immigration as, um, as a priority. And so the, the kind of flip side of expansionism and mobility from the Japanese side is white supremacy, uh, racism, and Japanese exclusion, as we see happening. With the you know white Australia policies, which are in place by 1901. Canada follows the United States with gentlemen's agreements, 1907, 1908. So we really see the broader geopolitical context of Japan going from that kind of contracted, uh, as Tsurumi Yusuke would say, kind of contracted, uh, stagnant feudal state of Tokugawa to becoming a more dynamic expansionist country, but also being held in check in different ways during Meiji, such that that also helps to shape the course of Japanese imperialism and militarism and so forth in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, where Japan sees itself as being you know, held to a different standard. And that um, gentlemen's agreements that were reached in 1907-08 were, were violated by the United States, for instance, with the Alien Exclusion Act and things like that. So there's a, there's a long course to that to that aspect of history, the only thing I would add is that you know, interestingly enough, Japanese immigrants, you know, no sooner do they get to North America or South America, you know, they're writing literature, they're writing poetry, they're creating art. So there's a lot of cultural production that has well over a hundred years of history in its own right, and I it's often divvied up along sort of national lines. So one thing is Japanese, the other is Japanese American, but these are all part of a larger Narrative, and I'm hoping that more, you know, more young scholars will be getting involved in reconnecting those aspects of a transnational modernity.
0: You had mentioned Brazil as the focus of your current research. Two questions: one, why Brazil, and secondly, does Brazil, or when looking at the Brazilian case, do we see the same kinds of uh, anti-Asian exclusionary policies that you do in looking at the other anglophone world?
1: So, yeah, I mean, I had my own personal interest in, in in Brazilian culture and so forth, but it turns out that Brazil became the largest site of Japanese, not only immigration, but settlement. So technically, Hawaii would have had more people, but on a decasegi model where they would go, they would work uh, for a contract period, and then they would return home uh, for various reasons, including the vast you know, geographical distance of crossing three oceans to get from Japan to Brazil, the, the vast majority really did emigrate and, and stay. And so with the collapse of the Japanese empire in 1945, Brazil does become, as it were, sort of the last man standing, uh, where you have the most Japanese you know, remaining in Brazil. And in fact, after the occupation ends, you have a resumption of Japanese immigration to Brazil, really up until the 60s, when Japanese economy sort of gets gets strong enough that people don't feel the need to do it anymore. So that's, you know, that's sort of, that's sort of um, just by the numbers, the compelling reason, I was always fascinated with both countries. So to, to look at the Japanese in Brazil, and to see how they, you know, became coffee, plantation uh, labor, and then, um, you know, sort of Moved up, integrating into the society in other ways is sort of, you know, I find that to be quite interesting in its own right. Um, To to shift to your other question, there were absolutely anti-Japanese politicians and ideologues. You know, a kind of yellow peril discourse is also present in Brazil in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century. Without without going into any amount of detail, I guess what we could say is that. There was a, a very successful business model that was struck between the two countries, where, where these so-called Japanese colonies would be mostly in very isolated parts of the country, working in you know very you know rural areas, predominantly coffee, uh, but you know there were other crops that were being grown as well, and it was very profitable. And so, to the extent that it benefited both countries, to keep this going uh, for at least. The teens, 20s, and 30s, late 30s, there, there weren't too many questions asked. The Japanese were able to speak and write and, and maintain their own immigrant uh, newspapers in Japanese, educate their children, to identify with Japan, not just with Brazil. And indeed, they, they, amongst themselves, they used the term overseas brethren, kaigai doho. So they didn't, they didn't think of themselves as nikkei. Uh, This term Nikkei, I believe, is really a a construct of the post-war period where, you know, post-defeat, post-loss of empire. But it was indeed uh, the case that when Brazil joined the war on the side of the United States and the Allies, that Japanese language was prohibited, Japanese publications. And so there weren't internment camps the Japanese in Peru were, in fact, sent to American internment camps. This wasn't going to happen in Brazil. But there were punitive uh, and repressive measures that were designed specifically to try to Brazilianize the Japanese. Uh, and, and, and the consequences of that are still very much clear uh, to the present day. So, for instance, when Japanese Brazilians, Nikkei, go to, go to Japan, they now think of themselves as de Kasegian reverse, And they tend to identify themselves as Brazilian by nationality, Brazilian in their hearts and, you know, working in Japan to make money and then go home. So we we see the historical model from Meiji flipped on its head.
0: If we could switch to teaching now, I'm curious, when you're teaching the Meiji period in your classrooms, how do you approach it for your students and how do you convey all of these changes?
1: Yeah, for the most part at Yale over the past um, five years now, I've taught a course that's called Meiji Literature and Visual Culture. And so it doesn't try to be uh, exhaustive, but I really try to walk the students through Um, some of the fundamental changes, including things like the invention and adoption of photography and cinema, changes from woodblock to typographic print culture, you know, looking at the ways literature also changed, as I described before. And so it's a kind of comprehensive look at the way in which especially verbal and visual forms of art and literature have quite dramatically changed.
0: I noticed that you had also translated a collection of Edo Rampo. That's right. My students love uh, his piece that I assigned the uh, the human chair.
1: Oh yeah, you can never sit down on a chair again without looking, you know, at it differently. You know, Rampo was born in Meiji and grew up, you know, I mean his formative years were still in Meiji. So, it's not surprising that you know that he had a lot to say about it in in the anthology that I translated. There's a particularly memorable essay called "Fingerprint Novels of the Meiji Era," and in it, Rampo hones in on the origins of forensic fingerprinting as it appears in literature, sort of pre detective fiction literature, as it were. Um, or rather, uh, his point is that forensic fingerprinting does not get imported into detective fiction right away. So. Um, he even gives these egregious examples of like a handprint left in a Sherlock Holmes uh, story that, that that Holmes never looks at or something like that. But he uses an example from this, from Kodon from the theatrical storytelling. And it was actually an Australian raconteur whose, whose uh, stage name was Kairakte Black, Braku, who wrote a story called The Magic Lantern, which involves, you know, using... Handprints left behind at the scene of the crime, and forensically comparing them to all of the employees in a bank to determine who the uh, you know who the killer of the bank owner was. So, in a, in an interesting way, Rompo is very nostalgic for um, some of the things that again were sort of the formative events in Meiji. Another good example is the essay that I translated as Rampo, uh, Confessions of Rompo, where he talks about. The differences between male male eroticism, the non shoku discourse of the Tokugawa era, and then new modern concepts of homosexuality. So that too was a very important transition point. That what had tr- traditionally been a more hierarchical relationship between an older and a younger man could now be re could be rethought as you know love between equals. So for him, that was also something very significant and. When I did the anthology on Rompo, there had only been really one book that's uh, patterned after Edgar Allan Poe. So Poe had a book called Tales of Mystery and Imagination, and Tuttle, in their infinite wisdom, decided that they would title their book Japanese Tales of Mystery and Imagination. So to my great fortune, Kurodahan Press, based in Fukuoka, an independent uh, book publisher, had started publishing popular fiction-type works, including... Two novellas by Rompo just prior to the completion of my anthology. And so uh, when I approached them, they were very enthusiastic. And, you know, the book was able to be published. You know, nowadays it's very hard to get translations published. But the point I was going to make is simply that I wanted to represent both Rompo's short stories, but also his essays to give a kind of more comprehensive view of his work. So, as you mentioned, works like The Human Chair. The hell of mirrors. Uh, I couldn't. I couldn't redo them. I felt. I know there are people who find criticism with those translations, but I thought they were uh, quite, quite elegant. And Rompo himself participated in their production. So I felt it would be more interesting to do, you know, works that had been less commented on. And certainly beyond the stuff about Meiji, there's a, you know an essay here or there. I tried to do some of the works that have appeared in the many you know cinematic remakes and anime and manga versions of, of Rompo's work. So it was a lot of fun and, you know, much to my delight, it's now 10, 11 years on since that anthology came out and many more works of Rompo's have been Translated, and many more scholars are working on him. So, you know, mission accomplished.
0: <laughs> so, I imagine you you assign a lot of rompo in your in your literature class. Are, are there other writers that you come back to over and over again in your classes and have found to be very useful in teaching about the Meiji period or, or the Taisho period?
1: Yeah, absolutely. For a time, I would shamelessly assign my own book to my students, which. I I finally got my fill of and just couldn't bear to do it anymore. Elaine Gerbert's uh, translation of A Strange Tale of Panorama Island is now available. So I I, I quite enjoy that. In full disclosure, I had done about 10% of a translation of that same novel when I found out that hers was going to come out. And so I just, you know, kind of gave up on that one. But um, (laughs) uh, Tanizaki, Kawabata, actually, I discovered that Kawabata had written two stories, one is a bit more essay-like, but basically two stories on Jinzo Ningen, which translates as both artificial humans, but also as robots. So um, the idea uh, that the author of Snow Country had also written about robots was too good to pass up. But yeah, I think, I think that I'm pretty consistent in my interests, uh, mostly science fiction, detective fiction, the discourse of eroguro nonsense or erotic grotesque nonsense, I've tried to expand my horizons a little bit with the literature of immigration and expansionism but yeah I, I tend to in fact as a kind of companion piece to the course on Meiji literature and visual culture I teach another that I just call Japanese modernism but it's also about mass culture. And so one of the things I'm very interested in there is to look at a few of these very canonical authors and look at the ways that their their literary production changes over a very short period of time. So You know, Tanizaki is sort of an obvious example, but from the 1920s into the 1930s, we have such a tremendous range of work. And and of course, there's a lot of different opinions about what it represents. But I think that students really enjoy grappling with both more westernized and modernist aspects, as well as the idea of a return to Japan.
0: And especially thinking about taking these canonical authors and you know some of their works are, are so are so familiar, you know, Kokoro or, or, or think. but then actually looking at the canonical authors, but then reading some of their less canonical texts and then seeing what we can take from those to kind of rethink uh, not only the canonical authors, but also the time period. And I, I mean, so when you're looking at the writings on kind of modernism, what kind of things do we see about the time period in which they're being produced that we might not think of as typical?
1: Yeah. You know, it's a good question. One of the things that I've tried to do pretty consistently in my teaching as well as research is to keep coming back to the dialogue between art and literature or maybe visual culture writ larger. So, you know, if we think about the, the polemical, you know, manifestos, whether it be the Futurist Manifesto or A Green Sun, there's a lot of of insight that I think we can take from the art world that also makes its way into literature. And so when we read literature to the exclusion of, let's say, Mavo, okay, or looking at some of the other very substantial figures in the art world, one who I take as a particular point of interest is Fujita Tsuguharu, who was part of the, the school of Paris. And I, I always joke to my students, he was like the fifth beetle, you know, no, <laughs> everyone knows Picasso, Modigliani, and so forth. They've never heard of Fujita. So reinserting someone like that back into Europe, back into the historical picture. And it, in fact, Fujita makes a four month trip to Brazil, um, as well as traveling around um, South America and, and uh, Latin America before going back to Japan from Paris, you know, these are stories that, um, I should say, historical events that really help shed light on what I was talking about earlier with Meiji, that is a sense of direct dialogue and uh, simultaneity. So Fujita as a close uh, friend and, and confidant of people like Modigliani or Diego Rivera, you know, the kind of artistic exchanges that happen You know, that's happening in literature, too, even in philosophy. I mean, many students are um, fascinated when they learn the extent to which Japanese writers, artists, uh, philosophers were really closely embedded in Europe and the United States. So uh, Kuki, for instance, providing the letter of introduction between his uh, French tutor, a young Jean-Paul Sartre, and an also very young Martin Heidegger. Right. Those, kind of, those kind of moments, I think, really do bind the Japanese pre-war period to this
0: larger world um, global context. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, at 150artsubcca Thank you for listening.